Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One, two, three, four! Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Winter, where we bring you all the best bits from my radio show on Talk Radio. This week is a special one. I talk to Yusuf Salam about being falsely accused of sexual assault and being a black man in America. If you watch the Ava DuVernay Netflix show, uh, When You See Us, you'll know his story, but his words and wisdom left me speechless. Plus, radio legend Annie Nightingale shares her stories of 50 years on the front line of music, how to find a passion in your job, and while she'll never stop listening to the news. And finally, journalist Louise Holland shows me the reality of one day slavery in the UK. It's bigger than you think. First up, Yusuf Salam and journalist Ibi Zoe talk about race in America. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Have you seen the Ava DuVernay Netflix series, When They See Us? It's about a group of five young black boys in New York who are wrongly convicted of sexual assault. Yusuf Salam is based on a true story and Yusuf Salam was one of the boys wrongly convicted. He only had his sentence overturned when the true criminal confessed. Uh, Since being acquitted... He's gone on to study, write, become an activist, and he has published a new novel in verse loosely based on his experiences called Punching the Air, along with co-author Ibi Zaboy. Both of them join us now to talk about it. Ibi and Yusef, hello. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having us. Thank hello. You. Hi, hello. Uh, Yusef, let me start with you. Can you tell us, for anyone who doesn't know the story can you tell us a little bit of your story maybe up to the point that you and Ibi met yeah absolutely you know back in 1989 31 years ago uh, I was run over by the spike wheels of justice and what happened was what happens in America really um, it happened all throughout the south where Mm -hmm. we were accused of raping a white woman in Central Park and because of that accusation they then tried and convicted us in a court of public opinion prior to us being tried and convicted in the actual court of law. Mm. And the problem with that in America is the duality of the criminal justice system, a system that I call a, a, a criminal system of injustice. And that duality says that if you are a person of color, you are seen as black. I mean, you're seen as guilty and have to prove yourself innocent. But if you are a person who has the complexion for acceptance, as they say in America, then you are innocent until they prove you guilty and you're afforded every opportunity under the law. The president at this, at this time right now, back then took out, took out a full page ad in New York City's newspapers calling for the death penalty. And what that essentially meant was that they wanted to lynch us. They wanted to legally lynch us. They wanted us to be murdered if possible. And if we didn't die through that process, then we would most certainly die a social death. And so all throughout the 
process, there was this, this indelible scar that we were living with that said that we were rapists and that we had not, the truth is that we had not done this crime. And they knew it. They knew it because dioxyribonucleic acid proved 13 years later that we had not done this. Two years after I, I came out of prison in 1997, I'm now in 1999 meeting Evie for the first time. We were both uh, in Hunter College and she was taking classes with the professor, Dr. Marimba Ani, and I walked in and it was such a beautiful thing because I was hiding in plain sight all that time, really having a difficult time trying to get my life back together. And the first thing that Dr. Marimba Ani said to me was, I knew you didn't do it. And then she told the whole class who I was and allowed me to participate. And I met Evie afterwards. And we had a really, really lovely talk as we walked up to Harlem um, talking about my case. You know, it was it was a liberating thing to really discuss it in a manner that that was received in such a beautiful and powerful way. I mean, it's you tell that story in such a powerful and beautiful way. Uh, Ibi, when you met Yusef for the first time and you heard his story, what, what did you think? Did you think, you know, at some point this man and I are going to be writing a book together? Uh, I thought that he would give me an interview for my college's newspaper. That's mm -hmm. why I went chasing after him. <laughs> but um, I grew up in New York City and seeing the racial incidences happening all throughout my childhood. And by the time I was in college and met Yusef, I knew that something was wrong with our system. Yeah. This sort of awareness doesn't come naturally for children. It's one of those things that you slowly begin to realize. And by, by college, I knew that I wanted to tackle injustice through journalism and ultimately through writing. I really wanna ask you both to begin with about the book. It's called Punching the Air. It is, uh, it's not your story, Yusuf, it's fictionalized, but it's about a young black boy uh, who is incorrectly accused and why did you want to, I guess, why did you want to write the book? And then also it's in verse, which makes it incredibly beautiful to read, but why verse? You know, as Evie and I have been talking, we really wanted to um, magnify the fact that I, that I was a child when I went through this. Mm -hmm. I was 15 years old. I was yeah. just one year older than Emmett Till. And so if you know the story of Emmett Till, you know mm -hmm. that, you know, a woman accused him of raping, mm -hmm. uh, of whistling at her, not even raping her, of whistling at her. And to that, he was put to death. He was murdered by the Jim Crow South, you know. Yeah. Um, we thought that it would be most effective to tell this story in such a way that gave the opportunity for young people in particular to really look at their lives and understand that they were born on purpose. They were born a full human being with full human rights. We are fighting for black lives in America right now because that those rights have been traveled upon. We are being murdered in the streets. We are not being given the opportunity to really live as full a life as they say, the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of true freedom, justice, and equality in America. Punching the air gives young people the, op the real beautiful opportunity to be water to the seeds of greatness inside of them, allowing them to become their ancestors' wildest dreams. I mean, this is the most extraordinary interview I've ever done because every time you say something, I think I just don't know what to say to that because it's so beautifully put. Um, Ibi, when you started writing this book, did you have did you have a kind of a purpose for it, something you wanted to convey through it? Well, you know what? Um, realizing how Yusef met Yusef and I met twenty one years mm -hmm. ago, it felt like divine purpose. Yeah. 
And I, over the years, I've acquired certain kinds of skills to be able to write this sort of story. Um, with Yousef, I've written from the perspective of a boy before, I've written poetry before. And by the time, by the time we met, it was just fate. It was supposed to happen. And it seems like Yousef is telling his story in all sorts of uh, different media. And it's, it is reparations for him and the other four members of the Exonerated Five. I mean, you have children. How do you talk to your children today about race in America today? You know, it wasn't until the When They See Us series mm. um, by Ava DuVernay about the Central Park Five case that I realized that I didn't tell them a lot about my personal history. They learned about civil rights in school. And then in 2012, the Black uh, the Black Lives Matter movement was born. So they thought nothing happened between the 1950s and 60s um, and 2012 because we're not taught about the racial history that happens in the set that happened in the 70s, 80s, 90s. There were wasn't some sort of movement to follow those racial incidences. So it's lost to history. So that series and my working with Yousef, Yousef helped me to remember that they don't know these things and we constantly have to teach them if at home, if they're not learning it in school or in the media. Yeah. Um, obviously last week there was March on Washington, 57 years since Martin Luther King gave his famous speech. Yousef, when that march took place, how did it feel for that to be happening now today? And what do you think it means for black people, but particularly for black men in America today? I think, you know, the, the, the most interesting thing is that it happened this year. Yeah. You know, it is it is something that we 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 uh, commemorate every single year. But the fact that this year, you know, 2020, it was more important, I think, as we look at the the symbolism of what the imagery of the words 2020 mean. I think around the globe, you know, if I'm not mistaken, 2020 symbolizes perfect eyesight, perfect vision. You know, and as we look at what's going on in the world and more particular in what's going on in America, especially under this president, we are seeing that we need now more than ever change. We have been fighting for freedom, justice, and equality. Back 57 years ago, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr had the March on Washington calling for freedom and jobs. That was 100 years after the Emancipation Proclamation was ratified by Abraham Lincoln. And so as you can imagine, 100 years passed, and here we were on Washington, on the Mall, talking about freedom and jobs, talking about giving us an opportunity to really live the American dream as opposed to the American nightmare. And so when I think about young black men young black boys, um, we are what they would consider in America an endangered species. We have been hunted, we have been murdered. There has been a, 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 a overwhelming um, um, push to keep us under a regime of oppression, never allowing us to become the great people that we were supposed to be. And I keep echoing that because when I look at our lives, every single one of us born into this world after being one of over 400 million options, and the fact that we were born signifies that we have a 
meaning and of value that we should be giving in this world. There's a purpose for us. And the fact that they keep on trying to make sure that our purpose is not realized, but rather our purpose is in the modern day cotton fields, if we happen to live. That is one of the most sinister, sad realities in America that we are experiencing today. There have been, you talk about that sinister and sad reality. What for you needs to happen to change that? What needs to change, mm. what has to change, mm. is that the whole system needs to be torn down and we need a system that speaks to the dream of Dr. Martin Luther King, that is inclusive of the kaleidoscope of the human family and allows us all to coexist. When we see what's going on, we are looking at the reactions to action. It is Newton's third law of motion in reality. We are seeing it, the embodiment of it. They are showing you the reactions by the eruption of the young people in particular, the heartbeat of America that built America, they are looking at that reaction in the streets and they are not telling you about why. The why is black life has to matter. That same statement that has rippled around the globe and become part of the global heartbeat is a reality that cannot be denied. You say that that statement has rippled around the globe, and it absolutely has. What can people outside of the U.S. do to support the Black Lives Matter within it and within their own countries? Well, I tell you, E.P. and I have wrote this really powerful, special book, and it showed up this year at this time, almost as if we planned it, but it could have showed up 20 years ago and been a story as powerful. But as people begin to purchase this book, read this book, digest it, pull up a chair to the table in their own homes, to the social media outlets that they are all a part of. They get the opportunity to really utilize our collective minds to figure out how is the way forward. This becomes a light in the darkness. This paves the way. Sometimes we're going down a road and there might not be a path, but we have to create the path in order for others to be able to come down it. And I truly believe as we have this conversation, we will be able to understand all of the social ills can be changed, but it happens because of young people in particular. Young people realizing their greatness, young people taking the mantle of tomorrow, realizing that this is a marathon, they will participate in the highest level in their own lives and in the best ways to make sure that coexisting happens and that the kaleidoscope of the human family becomes the most beautiful thing as opposed to the oppressor's knee on our necks. Ibi Youssef, thank you so much for your time and your words. Ibi Zaboy and Youssef Salam, they're authors of Punching the Air. I urge you to read it. Usually at this point, I round up with something pithy to take us into the break, but I don't think my words are enough here. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Now, let's get back to our guest. There are not a lot of women in radio, even now. We're, we're somewhat outnumbered by the guys, and most of us are only here because one woman did it first. Annie Nightingale was the first female DJ on Radio 1. 50 years later, she is still there, still as loved and as passionate about the music as she has always been. She joins us now. Hi, Annie. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to have you. (laughs) Um, Tell us, you have been, you're celebrating sort of 50 years at Radio 1. When you started, did you think, yep, this is the job for me for the rest of my life? Uh, I thought I'd last a year, Max, <laughs> if if at all. You know, I, I didn't have any confidence that it would work. Um, I just would say, can I have a go? If I'm rubbish, I promise I'll go away and I'll, I'll shut up and I'll leave you alone. So uh, there was no great belief. At, uh, no, I no idea that it would carry on so long. What was the radio industry like when you started? What was it like? What Radio 1? Yeah. Well, it was all blokes, and yeah. um, that uh, turned out to be this was a deliberate, and, <laughs> which uh, did make me laugh, because by then, I'd been a TV presenter uh, mm-hmm. on music shows, I'd written, you know, been a journalist, written about music in magazines and newspapers, so I felt, you know, not, un- you know, sort of not unqualified yeah. to, to have a go, um, and it, it was a great surprise to me when they went, no women, because I had not experienced that before. They actually, actually. said to you, and, no women. Yeah, so I went, um, so <laughs> why is that then? And they said, uh, well, I said, now becoming quite a, uh, I've said this a few times, but it's true, they said, DJs are husband substitutes. So they saw Radio 1 as providing service for <laughs> housewives at home, I think, and, uh, um, and they also yeah. said, they thought it was a very techy job. They would say, 
why would a woman want to be a DJ? <laughs> Which for me is the best job in the world, it still is. <laughs> and it's a way of, you know, I've passion for music. All you want to do is get it out there. And Harry, it's very much like making a phone call. So I'll yeah. phone Neil, I'll go, have you heard this? Let me play it down the phone to you, see whether you like it as well. <laughs> just sort of validate your own mad enthusiasm. Is it just me going mad, thinking this is great, or do other people like it? That was really my motivation. Where did That's your passion all. for music come from? Sorry? Where did your passion for music come from? I don't from? know. Um, it's the first word hmm. I can ever remember saying. Uh-huh. But I got it wrong. I said music. <laughs> so it was coming out of the radio as a child. And um, that's all it was. This is pre-television even. And certainly no internet. Yeah. Um, and all that. So it was, that was my thought. But I responded. I, um, but more so than most people, I became very scared of violins. I sort of still am. Because <laughs> they're so emotional. So music makes me kind of emotional. Oh. I can get very nervous listening to stuff. So certain tunes I can't listen to because they remind me of you know difficult times or yep. bad memories. I think we all do that. Absolutely. But it affects me very, very deeply. I've, I've never figured out why. But, you know, most people, if you say to most people, what, what kind of music do you like? Oh. They don't say, oh, I don't like music, do they? I mean, nope. we all say... Oh, yeah, a bit of this, a bit of everything, really. That, so I think it affects everyone in different ways. But I could never see a way to become a musician. Okay. I had you know, piano lessons when I was a kid, yeah. but I couldn't coordinate left and right very well. <laughs> so I never thought I could make a career of it. And there were no such things as DJs in the beginning. So it was, a, it was an absolute fantasy job for me when DJs started to happen. What did your parents think of this when you were growing up as a young girl and you were just obsessed with music, with bands, with musicians, with that whole creative piece? Were they like, go run with it, have the most amazing time? Or they're like, oh my God, what have we got here? Well, I think the, the latter, <laughs> the, oh my God, what have we got here? Because I you know, kind of got into kind of very weird underground music and <laughs> weird underground people and coming home what they walk, call the walk of shame now, you know, six o'clock in the morning. Um, having been out some party all night, they, they they were a bit concerned about that. But I'd grown up with their, their sort of pop music, which had been, my dad liked Bing Crosby, my mum liked Frank Sinatra, yeah. and the, the bigger family would be, I mean, so conventional, you know, music from, you know, musicals, Oklahoma, all the, you know, kind of that kind of thing. So there's nothing... There was nothing in my family that suggested any kind of uh, musical direction. And then things like Radio Luxembourg happened, um, which played Rhythm and Blues and Chuck Berry and Little Richard. And, of course, what I didn't realise that all us kids listening under the bedclothes were including four guys in Liverpool who were also listening to that. And then we all became that generation of... You know the Beatles lovers, and the, and and that all became that came about because of radio stations like that, and then the pirate radio stations, which in the end got banned, and that's why Radio One happened. I mean, I'd love to be in the pirate, <laughs> but I couldn't. I couldn't swear out to see him. Join in, really. But when 
when they got out there was, and Radio 1 happened, they were now on dry land. And I thought, ah, this is my opportunity. But, you know, as I say, it wasn't for quite three years. They wouldn't, wouldn't have it. Tell us a little bit about you know, becoming part of that world because you know, famously you're very good friends with the Beatles, with the music. You were friends with the musicians of that kind of classic music era that we all picture in our heads when we think of true rock and roll and musical revolution. When you look at it now, do you think I, it's weird that people have sort of, in a way, um, almost idolised something that for you was normal life? Um, yeah, I'm not quite sure I quite get what you mean. Um, More like when you look back at that period of the 60s and 70s of being friends with the most famous band in the world. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. Do you see it now as this sort of, how do you feel about it? I feel incredibly privileged. Mm. But, uh, but the other thing is I feel a huge debt to them yeah. because they changed a whole generation of young people. They made young yeah. people think, Wow, you know they're bad from Liverpool. They're yeah. you know normal guys. They didn't have expensive education or anything like that. They inspired everyone to have a go and to believe that they could achieve their dream and that you didn't have to do what necessarily the careers teacher at school told you or that you've got to follow your footsteps. You know, a lot of people had to follow what their parents did, and yeah. that there was this fantastic new freedom and this inspiration that we could do it. And that is what, to me, the debt to them is about, that, that making us feel that we could, we could achieve our dream as well, whatever it happened to be. So that was what's important. Obviously, music was great. They had that unique combination of great talent. They were witty. They, they had everything going for them, which is what you need. You know, if you've got one element missing, it won't happen. And, I mean, everyone knows the Beatles story mm-hmm. now. Um, and to then have the opportunity to meet them and um, be approved, if you like, yeah. was incredible. You know, I thought I was so fortunate to, to get to know them at all. And then I wanted to s- spread that word because they, um, they started up their own label called Apple and they wanted to try and help everybody else out, whether it was making films or writing books or... Whatever, but of course it was a mad utopian idea <laughs> that, um, that 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 became a bit of a nightmare for them. But I really I enjoyed I respected what they were trying to do. So I'd be I'd be able to be at Apple and I'd be interviewing all the bands that they were signing up wow. and trying to yeah you know, they, they were trying to give something back. Yeah. Do you think that spirit still exists in music today? Uh. Yes, I do in a way. I think people, um, they they do try and give back, and they they start um, they start a label. They they've done well, quite well themselves, and they start a label, and they always sign up other people uh, to that. I mean, it's very very different now. Obviously, incredibly different yeah. in some ways, but in some ways it isn't. You know, um, we have there's so much music out there now, which you can find on streaming platforms mm-hmm. it, it was much smaller in those days you, you know you, you'd know what all the top 10 were you'd, yeah. you'd, you'd know all the artists there were that there were a few now every, you know, everyone's making a record in their bedroom so it's uh, SoundCloud a mix of all these different platforms it's very easy to get lost and if I was a young person 
uh, trying to make music, I would find it great in one way, but very frustrating. I'm thinking, well, no one's ever going to hear me. How's anyone ever going to find me? I mean, we're going to keep talking to you, Annie, because you say, how's anyone ever going to find me? But you are sort of famous for finding people. And I want to talk to you about how you do that and how you keep up with all the musical changes, the technological changes and everything else happening in the industry today. We're going to keep talking to Annie here on Talk Radio. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Annie, before the break, you said you know, it's both an amazing period in music and that there are all these ways that you can get your music out there, but also for young musicians, potentially very difficult to be heard because they get lost in the melee. How do you keep up with new music? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't buy records anymore. You know, there's nothing or CDs. It's all yeah. it's, it's all online. So I'm downloading from first thing in the morning. I get material from all over the world, uh, from different people, from record companies, from people called pluggers, from yeah. individuals. Um, and, and I mean, the only frustrating thing is you don't want to miss anything, and you know, there's so much music out there. How are you gonna, how are you gonna make sure you don't miss anything? And that, that's the worry because you know, the, 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 somewhere there is somebody very special. For example, hmm. the Billie Eilish, who is, I think, absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. She's only 18 now, yeah. but you know, she's won every award there is. She and her brother. Phineas are just absolutely extraordinary talent. And they started out, they you know, they lived in Los Angeles and they'd had uh, they'd had homeschooling and their parents are both actors and musicians and they'd been taken to things like Hollywood Bowl on a Saturday afternoon to hear, you know, classical music or have um, and won scholarships to uh, various, you know, music academies. So they'd had a musical education. Anyway, so Billy was then 14. Her brother would have been 16, I think, or what, what, a bit older than her. And they made this tune called Ocean Eyes. And they put it on SoundCloud. And they went, they, you know, they were at home, they were at the family home, they went to bed, went to sleep. When they woke up, they got a thousand people had liked it. And they were both amazed. They didn't know a thousand people. How could a thousand people have heard it? But they did. And one of them became their manager. And so it can happen. And from then on, their story is, you know, it's just extraordinary. And I'm fascinated to know where they will go next, you know, with with what they're doing. Obviously, they should have been on tour this here, this summer, um, and all around the world. But that hasn't happened. There's been no no live music. But they they wrote the the music for the New Zealand Bond film, which is coming out in November. And uh, that extraordinary, once-in-a-generation talent, I found very, very exciting. I really do. Now, I heard about them through a 13-year-old. Wow. That's the thing. You listen to young people. They know what's new and what's good. And so you you keep a very open mind as to where you're listening from. And you don't have preconceived ideas. You You just think, is this good? That's all. It might be any style. It doesn't matter. But you kind of got to believe it. I do get, about once a year, I get the shivers up down my legs. I think, oh, my God, it's so special. And sometimes it becomes a big hit. Sometimes it doesn't. There's been yeah. one all this year that I've been playing called Just Hold On, which to me, it's like the, the feeling that we've all had during the pandemic. Yeah. 
um, and it's by uh, two guys who've collaborated on it. One, um, one called Wilkinson, and the other one called Subfocus, and it's called Just Hold On. And the song, it's, it's the female vocalist saying, "Just hold on, we've we've lost so many," and it really struck a chord with me. Yeah. That it was like what we all, you know, we all texting each other, phoning each other, saying, "How are you? Stay safe." As you know, as we've been doing for the last six months, and it was a song that somehow kind of said it all, yeah. and that comes at you. You don't know that's going to happen, and so to have a radio show where I can play that, that that is that's it. That's what you know. That's what I'm about. You've had your show now for fifty years. You just turned eighty. Has in those fifty years, have you ever experienced? any level of ageism has anyone ever said to you oh annie um we've just taken a look at your birth certificate you've been here a while now maybe you want to think about moving on has that never happened well um they say i mean yeah very good question fair enough <laughs> it's extraordinary and weird and very strange and amazing. To me as well yeah but they so yeah fair question absolutely to ask. but um one thing is, I didn't get near a radio station, uh, uh, radio studio until I was 30. Yeah. Nowadays, of course, people are, you know, they're coming in and they're doing things when they're teenagers. So yeah. there was a good, like, 15 years that I didn't have to learn anything. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, that, well, I wasn't allowed. So although it does sound a ridiculous age, it, that doesn't occur to people that, I didn't, I had a you know, yeah. very late starter because there wasn't any opportunity to get in. But now, uh, Radio 1 say, you're relevant. Yeah. And that is the word that, that counts with them because I'm, I play underground music. A lot of it's called trap. And yeah. Future Bass comes from Atlanta and now moves to LA and moving around the world and stuff like that. So, you know, if you've got a computer, you've got access to the whole world. Yeah. And then I think my judgment should be better yeah. than it was when I started. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm, you know, I can be quite, you know, I can say, no, it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Yeah. And people say, what are you looking for? And you soon you go, well, you're looking for, it's got to have three things for it. It's got to have the melody and the beats. And it's got to say something as well. If it, if it, you know, if it's, um, if you're not a dance track, an instrumental track. So you've got to, it's got to do those things. It's got to move you. And you can't analyse why. Yeah. But sometimes somebody sends me a track, and I think, well, that's really, really good. But you've left the, the, the best bit right to the end. <laughs> now, people aren't going to listen all the way through. Why don't you pick that bit up at the four minutes in and plot that at the beginning? Because I've got to make up my mind pretty quickly if that track's going to work or not. Literally, within... Mm -hmm. 20 seconds sounds very cruel but to get you know to get to listen and also i respect the audience and yeah. i think they've got a lot of different radio entities from and they've got spotify and they've got all these platforms if you don't hook them in quick with something good they're not good, they're just going to go away and fair enough so i'm really critical on their on the audience behalf i try to say right the deal is if you ever listen to me, I'll play the very best music that I can find that I found during this past week that I probably that I can, and that's the deal. And yeah, so it's a kind of honesty and a trust yeah. that I wouldn't play anything that I didn't think is good. Or you might play a new record by an established artist because mm -hmm. 
It's their new record. They want to hear it. Yeah. But if it isn't any good, I won't play it again. Yeah. So it's this personal judgment, and I'm really incredibly fortunate that I'm allowed to play what I like. If I didn't, I wouldn't be doing it. Mm. It wouldn't be any point. I mean, I'm not there. Yeah. To be, you know, to be anything than that. I just like. I have intense joy that music brings me. And it's a new music. People say they find that hard to believe. Most people don't bother with you know, new pop music beyond the age of maybe, maybe, maybe big, big 20s. But with me, it's stuck all my life. I really loved what you said there. You said, I'm still relevant. I'm really clear about who I am with the audience and what they're going to get when they listen to me. And I'm really clear with musicians. They send me stuff what works and what doesn't. And that says to me that you have an immense sense of who you are as a person and what you bring to I imagine well, I, to your work and to know. everything I'm, else not as much as you might think <laughs> really um, I just think I'm a person who spent a, a long time listening to music which I love yeah. and I feel very privileged to be have a platform to, to say it uh, to say it really and uh, I never got bored with it I never I never got jaded I mean there are times when you know, the music hits a fantastic peak and it goes through a wonderful time and then it might dip for a while, but always believe, always think what's around the corner. You don't want to miss the next, you know, uh, you don't know what's around the corner. Mm. So have faith in the future. I well, really do believe that as well. What would you say to somebody who's like, I know I want a career as long as yours and I, I want to stay relevant for as long as I can. How, what advice would you give them? I think you've got to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, I don't really, it's very difficult actually to say. I mean, because it's a natural enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. If you don't have that yeah. natural enthusiasm, then you, know, you wouldn't want to do it anyway. Yeah. Um, so if you have that passion, then you'd know that you want to carry on doing it. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it's not an act. And people sometimes say to me, yeah, yeah, okay, all this new stuff, but what do you go, what do you listen to in your spare time? <laughs> I go, the same. Yeah. If it's old music, well, I know that. I've heard it. Yeah, it's lovely. It's great. Well done. <laughs> but, yeah, I want to know the next the next thing. Um, I, I, maybe I'm just have a very inquiring mind. But um, sometimes you might go back and go, actually, that reminds me of... Blah, blah, blah. And then you do a compare and contrast and play the new one. And then you play a track that, you know, maybe from the 90s or something that it's reminded you of or it's been sampled by. So, you know, I'm interested in the history of music. It's not like I'm denying everything that's gone before at all. And in this book that I've written, which is mm -hmm. what, why we're talking, yeah. I've got a lot of interviews in it, which I've done over the five decades uh, since I joined Radio 1, which indicate the different kinds of music. So the first interview is with Mark Boland, so that's all about yeah. glam rock, and then, Mark, and then Bob Marley about reggae. And then we end up with... Um, Little Sims, who's a, a brilliant um, British crime artist, um, more than that, and um, and Billy Eilish. So it goes, runs right through, and in between you've got Primal Scream and The Streets and Elvis Costello, Dusty Springfield. The book is not all interviews, but I thought they'd be good to put them in where they illustrate um, the the time that they happened, yeah. and they all refer to different kinds of music. So you jump about. Um, so it's just reflecting the pop culture of, of 
of this last five decades. And I go back a bit further as well in some places. What I think is really interesting about the book is it's sort of it's it's got a bit of your story, and as you say, it's got a bit of the story of music of the last five decades and the people that have shaped it and influenced it. What do you think have been some of the key changes within the music industry in the past 50 years? We all look forward to something massively fantastic happening. <laughs> and um, in the 90s, we had Acid House. Yeah. And that, I think, was... You know, I was not of that age group by then, obviously. Um, and I didn't feel that I could join the party because they weren't... You know, my, I didn't make a fool of myself either. But they invited me in. They were very open and inclusive. So that brought huge joy to us. Yeah. And it, it changed the culture. Uh, you know, it, it brought back rave culture, which had actually begun in the 50s. Yeah. So the 90s was very, very special to me. And yeah. um, now we've got, um, in, in the UK music anyway, as I say, my thing is a trap and Future Base, which is really American. But it kind of moves around the world. And it, that is a mixture of metal meets hip-hop. But with a lot of joy in it. And you, you hear them some in the studio going, hey, and you think, oh, my God, it has done that. I having such a good time. I wish I was there with them. So joyous music, music that you know, inspires you and lifts you. Um, so that's going on now. Yeah. We've got you know, Grime and Stormzy, um, representing British music and the, the effects of, of grime on the... It's a bit like, in a way, it reminds me of um, of punk and things like everyone remembers of the specials, Ghost Town. Yeah. Now, that really summed up the culture in the early 80s. And what we're all going through now, which is a desperately difficult time for everyone... That it kind of reminds me a bit of those times when we had a lot of uh, unemployment and um, a lot of great difficulties, not maybe as great as we have right now, but certainly the music then was reflecting what was going on. And I think that that grime music is partly reflecting the social, what's going on right now Mm. and documenting it. And that is, I think that's very important. Finally, Annie, the book looks back, but looking forward, who do you want to interview next and what is next for you? Um, well, my 50th anniversary yeah. uh, on Radio 1 is going to be celebrated in November and uh, I've made two punk documentaries. So I used to do a show on TV called The Old Grey Whistle yeah. and um, the years that I was the anchor were... Uh, 1978 to 82, 83, which were very much the punk years. And they've not really been reflected in uh, uh, you know, kind of compilation programs properly. So those are going to go out, I think, on BBC4 in November. And uh, I, I, you know, I hope they'll be very good. And we're going to do a lot of special shows on Radio 1 um, at that time in November. So one of the people, going back to your question, mm. one of the people I really like to interview and never have a chance to is Eminem, because I think he's mm. very good. I mean, he gets, he gets criticised for being misogynist. Yeah. I'd like to actually ask him about that if it's really true. Um, yeah. But I think he's extraordinary talent. So it's usually his people, lyricists. And, um, and, um, and Vladimir Putin, I would love to interview him. 
great call. I can't wait to, I can't wait to hear that interview. Um, Annie, thank you so much for joining us. Your enthusiasm and openness is infectious. I feel like I need to listen to you every morning. Have a great (laughs) great evening. Thank you. You too. The amazing Annie Nightingale talking about her 50 years in radio. Uh, Just a joy. You can see, you can see why everybody still listens to her because she just brings such energy to everything she does. Amazing woman. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Now, did you know there are 136,000 people currently enslaved in the UK? Would you be able to spot one? Because you've almost certainly met one. You've almost possibly bought services from one. Uh, And in doing so, you are feeding into a massive criminal enterprise. Here to talk to us now about it is Louise Holland, author of Human Trafficking and Slavery in Britain Today. Hi, Louise. Hi, how are, how are you? Good, thank you. Um, first of all, let's start with the basics. What do we mean when we talk about slavery in Britain today? What? Well, the really important thing is that whilst we hear these statistics of around 136,000 uh, people in modern day slavery, mm. it's really, really difficult to put an accurate figure on it. Um, maybe because of the kind of, of, of crime that this is. It's 120 billion pounds a year crime for human traffickers and they are very very clever at what they do so by enticing people with the offer of a job or basically scaring people into um slavery what happens is they tend to be um infiltrate various different uh, circles here in the UK and what we find is that people are enslaved in so many different areas in the UK so it could be nail bars it could be car washes it could be the hospitality industry all different things like that so we could be going about our daily business not really understanding that the girl who's painting our nails or the guy who's washing our car or maybe the cleaner who comes in and cleans our office actually isn't getting paid for that maybe they've had their documents and papers taken away and they're having um they they might not be in chains as we would know it from the history books uh, but there is so much coercive control over them that they are actually too scared to leave this situation um, so i link modern day slavery with human trafficking is that always yeah. right so basically it's kind of two sides of a different coin so the trafficking is the part of the crime that sort of st- where the slavery can potentially start so to traffic somebody um is to take somebody from a to b and you, you you're doing it for the purposes of exploitation yeah. that person may be going willingly because so many traffickers are really smart and they find a weak spot in a potential victim and that's how they get them to go with them so for example in my book stolen lives um, Elena, who is the, the main the main story that we follow, she fell in love with a young man when she was at home in Albania. She went on holiday with him to meet his parents and ended up in a brothel. So even though she went willingly on that trip, yeah. it was still trafficking because she did not know the purpose of of that actual trip. It was done through deception. Some people come to the UK with legitimate papers. They come here with the best will in the world because they've actually got a job. When they get when they get here, they realise the job is not what it seems. Their papers are taken from them. So that's a, this kind of trafficking part of it. The slavery is then what happens at the other end of that journey when the papers have gone, the job doesn't exist. They're not going to be a waitress in a fancy London hotel. Actually, they're in a brothel or they're doing enforced criminality. So it's really, it's it's a really grim, grim world. One of the things that I thought was interesting is that you say in your book that of those people in the UK in some form of slavery, the majority of those identified are British. Now, I think we sort of think of this as an 
in quotes another problem you know something that is brought into our shelf into our shores it doesn't actually happen to anyone who would identify themselves as british but that's not correct right no it's not so the reason that this has changed so basically that the statistic that's come out recently but i was saying earlier it's really difficult to put an accurate figure on how many people are enslaved in the uk because they're living in the shadows they're in plain sight but they may not even identify as being a victim so it's hard to put figures on it one thing that we can do is find out how many people um have actually been rescued and have gone into what we call the system that the nrm is for one of the is what it's called i'll try not keep it that technical and um, so the people that have gone into the nrm that are now in the system and are being supported for the last two years it's been british people that have made up the biggest number of those victims now that's partly because of county lines so maybe 10 years ago young people that were involved in drug trafficking and um, would have been criminalized but now actually we look at it in a different way and realize that that the gangs who control the drugs are often controlling um, more than likely the young people through threats, fear, intimidation, and they've targeted vulnerable people. So because that crime has now fallen under the umbrella term of modern slavery, that's one of the reasons why the British figures have gone up. But however, don't make any mistake that, that it's purely that. One of the, one of the most famous cases, um, from the earliest cases, was... Um, back in 2013, when a Welshman called Daryl Semester uh, was rescued after spending 13 years as a slave um, on a farm in Wales. And there are many, many cases of British people exploiting other British people. So it's really, really naive to think this is something that happened in other countries to other people. How did you start investigating this? Um, it was around 2010 in the run-up to the London Olympics. Um, I'd been chatting to a couple of people who worked in academia who sort of did a lot of unorganised crime and we had a really interesting conversation about whether the Olympics would facilitate um, or certainly attract traffickers at that point. And that kind of got me thinking about it from an academic or a, a, a kind of... I guess, theoretical point of view as part of organised crime. But it was um, a few years later when I actually met Elena, uh, the young woman in my book. And, you know, with the best in the world, you can be interested in a topic theoretically, but then the minute that you see someone who's been a victim of that crime, sort of looked into their eyes and seen what it's done to them, putting a human face on something that until then had been theoretical, that really did change everything for me. And then as I sort of got to know her and heard more and more about her story, what had happened to her, and then saw actually the things that she had to go through once she was here in the UK as well. Um, yeah, it was something that I couldn't really turn my back, my back on. You've obviously now spoken to lots of victims of modern day slavery. Do you are there kind of themes that unite them and what have you learned from them that really surprised you? Oh, the will to forgive. Honestly, I get, I get, I get, I get shivers just thinking about it. I think the dark, one of the darkest things about writing Stolen Lives was the fact that I really, just when you think you can't really underestimate what one person can do to another, um, something else, you read about something else horrific and you just think, I can't quite believe that one human being can do that to someone else. Um, but you've also, I also saw the best of people as well, so the people that were working on the front line, the, sort of the, 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 the police officers, the charity workers, the psychologists, the lawyers, all these people sort of fighting to help the victims. Um, but I think the most surprising thing for me with the survivors was the fact that they, they wanted to tell their story because they wanted their voice back, and that was one of the reasons why I was so keen to write so many lives. I wanted to give them their voice back. And I think the fact that they can... They've, they've put their lives back together and they have hope and they have faith in people and maybe faith in, in, a, in a higher power if that's, 
if that's their way, the fact that they can start to look to the future. I, I don't know how anyone ever recovers from that. And, and it was so humbling to, to talk to them and get to know them and, and give, them, give them a chance to tell their story. What as individuals can we do to fight modern day slavery? I mean, I am so aware that when I go and get my nails done, I I walk in and I have that moment where I'm like, I, I if I go into a nail bar and there is a girl of Asian origin working there and I start to worry, if, am I part of it? And I've sort of tried to manage that by going to places that I think are reputable, but I'm still guessing. I don't know. So Listen, what, to be fair, I've written a book on this and I do exactly the same thing. I think there are some really key markers that you can do. Firstly, keep your eyes out. I mean, the fact that it's the fact that modern day slavery and human trafficking is on your radar when you're going about your daily business and being a consumer is the first step. Yeah. Um, secondly, there are so many resources out there um, through charities like Unseen and the Modern uh, the Modern Slavery Helpline, which if you ever go online, you ever worry, you go you can go online and they will outline some of the key um, key clues, which I'll I'll do in a second. And if you ever ever worry about reporting somebody, it won't it won't come back on you. If you have doubts and you want to flag it. Yeah. it's better to do that and be wrong it's not down to you to be right you can flag it and let the experts take over if you if you're right you've potentially given someone back their freedom so it's better to be over course if you won't get anyone in any, any trouble but i think the, the two things that i would say is firstly the level of interaction with people you know i too had sort of certain nerves about my local nail bars etc and when i'm going in i thought sort of, the first thing i think is you know how communicative communicative how chatty how much are these girls sort of showing about their lives and i've been quite happy that um the girls that do my nails are there all the time they chat to me in fact I yeah. they, they talk a lot they share their stories about their lives and um, i think it's when you're looking for people who um they seem intimidated they seem cowed uh, they maybe even bosses are actually in front of customers not being that pleasant to them mm-hmm. Um, you can sort of tell by body um, body language, demeanours that they perhaps do feel slightly frightened, not talking with you. Maybe you're giving the cash. Cash is usually a, a pretty. Um, it's not a great indicator of, of, of a definite uh, Monday slavery, but it's something to flag because obviously it's a it's a cheaper cheaper procedure. So who are you giving the money to? We're going to um, get a cheap car wash. How many people are washing your car versus what you're paying? Um, are they giving the money to, are they pocketing the money or are they giving it to someone else who then gives the money back or not? Are they wearing flip-flops in the winter? Do they have the equipment on their arms and legs and hands to do the job with all the chemicals? I've heard some shocking stories about what's happened to men when they've been working with these chemicals without um, the proper equipment. And of course, as well, you know, most of us don't have people who live in our houses to help us clean. But if you have a neighbour who has mm-hmm. um, any kind of domestic help, do you see them? How chatty are they? You know, do you feel that they are locked away um, or, and, and again, cowed? Um, these are all it's, it's, these are all things that you sort of think, can I really actually commit to, to spotting that in somebody? Um, but I think... If you have someone living with them and they don't seem to ever have holidays, you see them working all the time, they don't seem to be turned out that well. Perhaps it's a strange, you see strange combinations of people uh, together in that situation. That's always worth looking at as well. But mm. if you have something in your gut, it's always better to flag it um, to places like the Modern Slavery Helpline and be wrong than not. Please, what impact has COVID-19 had on Monday Slavery, do you think? Well, there are three key points there. Firstly... Um, the lockdown has had a huge impact on the um, 
survivors themselves because if you think about it they've gone from having their liberty taken away uh, they've potentially been trapped in a house they've not been able to go out and about they've got their freedom back and now they're on lockdown again and though that's been um talking anecdotally to people that work with survivors that's had a uh, had triggered a lot of ptsd for quite a few survivors but then there's the practicalities of their support that they've been getting as well through lockdown everything's had to uh, change quite dramatically just when they've had all these support networks given to them they kind of potentially delayed or slowed down or or limited somewhat then there's the other um problem of the fact that as the world uh, gets more and more disruptive that's when traffickers tend to strike as well so whenever there's any kind of natural disaster or war traffickers can then target the most vulnerable people so as the economies change over the world as as all sorts of places have been effectively shut down through COVID, people haven't been looking after necessarily the most vulnerable people, so they've been able to strike again. And as we all worry globally about the economy, and consumers like us are going to want uh, to save money and get cheaper options, and that's a bit of a toxic combination um, yeah. when you couple that with the vulnerable people around the world. Louise, you throw such an incredible light on this subject and really made me think thank you so much louise hollander she is uh, the author of the new book stolen lives all about modern human trafficking and modern day slavery in britain today the stories she shares are just incredible she says stories of resilience and of people who have survived unbearable situations and still have the ability to forgive um uh, yeah, it's an amazing read, but also a sign that we can all be more mindful about how we consume the products we think we must, must have. But when we're not sure where they're coming from, the price can be much higher than we think. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour. Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more Badass Guests and in-depth chat. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.